Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. We're going to gather together today to pray. And so we'd encourage you to come. Six o'clock, okay? We're going to be across the street. Don't come here. We'll be across the street. All right, my friends, we are in Matthew chapter 8. You know, when I uh, received word that Saeed had been uh, released from prison, believe it or not, I, I thought to myself, no, 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 that can't be true. It came across like a BBC report. I said, well, that can't be true because we're praying for re- him to be released from prison. So how could he be released from prison? And it was just that act story that, uh, you know, you have there where they're praying for Peter to be released. And so just remarkable. Please continue to pray for him and his family. Um, you know, he's just not going to jump in back into life, so to speak, and everything will be uh, sweet and normal. There, there's a lot of uh, challenges ahead, certainly. Let's pray for our brother and his family. Father, we, uh, we lift up Pastor Saeed. We lift up Nagme and the children, Lord, uh, their extended family. Father, all of those that uh, will be caring and ministering uh, to him, bo- both uh, spiritual care as well as physical and, and even uh, psychological care for, for our brother. Lord, coming off of uh, three and a half years of confinement in a place, Lord, uh, that certainly wasn't kind to him. Father, we do pray that you would do miraculous work, a miraculous work of healing, just as you've done a miraculous work of, uh, of getting him out. Father, we lift him up to you, and we thank you for the testimony, Lord, that he kept. Lord, strong for you and, and for the many lives, Lord, that we've been, uh, we've been informed that we're impacted by his faithful testimony. But be with him, Lord, we pray. Father, be with us. Give us hearts that are after you. Bless this time in your word, Lord. I do pray that you would speak here to us. As Josh prayed earlier, Lord, that your spirit would come and minister, Lord, during this time together. Lord, that you would draw us, Lord, really to your, right to the foot of the cross. Lord, that we would see, Lord, your sacrifice and the way in which that sacrifice and our faith that we've placed in it, Lord, has opened up to us the possibility of being in relationship with the God of the universe, Lord, that the enmity that was once there that separated us from a holy God, Lord, has been uh, taken away and we can enter into your presence, Lord. Remarkably, even your word tells us we could enter in boldly into your presence because we know that we don't come in our own righteousness, but we come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ imparted to us that believe. Remarkable truths, Lord, for us to consider. And so, Lord, now, by your Holy Spirit, come and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to begin. What would you do to see someone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? What would you be willing to do to see someone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is there anything you'd be willing to sacrifice? Is there anything you'd be willing to give up? Let me ask you this way. How much is a person's soul worth to you? How much trouble would you be willing to undergo just so that a person might be delivered from their sin and set free to both know the Lord and be known by the Lord. And this morning, I want to take some time to consider Matthew chapter 8, because I believe it addresses these questions. But you can file those questions in the back of your mind 
this morning as we continue in Matthew chapter 8, we remind ourselves that we are about a year or so, less than a full year, into the earthly ministry of Jesus. And the immediate context, again, we remind ourselves that he was in the city of Capernaum, the village of Capernaum. Mark tells us that the whole city was coming to the place where he was staying so that they could be healed and delivered and touched by him, which he did, it says. We learned that he uh, ministered to the people's needs and that the crowds continued to grow. And when Jesus saw those crowds, Jesus said, I'm not interested in the crowds. And he took off. He said, guys, get the boats ready. They headed over to the other side of the sea, or they were about to. When they got on that sea, we learned last week that a great storm arose. So great that these experienced fishermen even declared, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? We're going to die here and you're sleeping. You don't even care about us. Now again, don't judge the guys too quickly because you've been there, haven't you? But remember, what we learned is this, is that there were two specific reasons that they were in the boat. One is because Jesus was in the boat and they were seeking to be his followers. And if Jesus was going to be in the boat, then they were going to be in the boat. And I spent time considering this, that every one of life's difficulties is not the result of our suffering the consequences of our sin. You could even make this statement, though it sounds nuts, but you could say we sometimes go through life's difficulties suffering the consequences of our obedience. That we're in life's difficulties because we are obeying the Lord. And that's exactly what's going on with these folks here. So the first thing that we learn is this. They're in the boat because Jesus is in the boat. Secondly, they're in the boat because Jesus commanded them to be in the boat. So they weren't just tagging along uninvited, and it's your own fault. I never told you to come here. But Jesus said to be in the boat. He gave them a command. In verse 18, it said, when Jesus saw the crowd, he gave orders to go to the other side. So they're in the boat because they want to follow the Lord, and they are in the boat because he commanded them to be there. It's an act of obedience on their part. And then a storm rolls in. And I imagine some of them begin thinking something like, all right, Lord, why are we here? I'm here because I want to follow you. I'm here because I'm trying to be obedient. But again, why am I here? What am I learning through this? What's the purpose of this struggle that I'm going through? God, are you putting me through this just because you can put me through this? Is this some power trip that you're having here, Lord? Well, I'd like to suggest to you two reasons for why Jesus commanded these disciples to get in the boat, despite the fact that Jesus knew a storm was going to come while they were in the boat. The first one we saw last week is so that they can learn something from this experience. I told you last week, they knew that he could heal a leper. They knew he could deliver people from demons and things like that, but they did not know that the wind and the waves would obey him. And that's something they learned about him that they could learn no other place except being in the wind and the waves. And so the scripture says in verse 27 that the men marveled when they discovered this truth. So one reason why the Lord had his disciples get into this boat, even though he knew the storm was coming, was to teach them something that they could learn in no other way. So that's the first reason. God put them in this boat through this storm because he wanted to do a work in them. Now there's a second reason which leads us to our passage today, and the account that we're going to look at in a few moments will tell us this. Not only did God want to do a work in them, but God wanted to do a work through them. And that's why they had to get into this boat, and that's why they had to go through this storm. Through this group of men, Jesus in particular, but through this group of men, they would get to the other side of the sea, and they would touch somebody else's life. He wanted to do a work in them, but he wanted to do a work through them. So let's read the account, starting in verse 28. 
It says, now when Jesus came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, then send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they went out, and they went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now remember, you can think of the Sea of Galilee as a clock. Capernaum, about 11.30 on the clock. The region of Gadara is about 5.30 on the clock. Depending on the version that you're reading, some of your Bibles will say that they went to the country of the Gadarenes. Other versions say the Gergeshines. Other versions say the Gerasenes. We're talking all about the same area of land. It's the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Gadara was a Gentile land but it was populated by both Jews and Gentiles at the time of Christ. And so there are Jews there in Gadara, but as we're going to see, they weren't, very, they weren't the most religious Jews in the world. But no doubt, the disciples are thinking, why are we going to Gentile land where, if anything, there's Jews, but they're non-religious Jews? Why are we going over here? Why are we heading to Gadara? And I'm sure that quandary only got a little bit deeper when the first thing they encounter when they get there are a couple of demon-possessed men. They're probably thinking, does everybody that lives in this place, are they all this crazy? As this guy that, these guys that come running out to us. So Matthew 8.28 tells us two demon-possessed men met him or met them. Now the same account of this story is recorded for us in the book of Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. And it's significant to note that in both Mark and Luke, they tell of one demon-possessed man encountering them at the boat, whereas here it tells us of two demon-possessed men. Now you look at that and you say, well, is that a contradiction? And the answer is no. If there's two, then there has to be one. And the point, what happens is Mark and Luke, they simply focus their attention on the one of the two men, perhaps the spokesman of the two. So don't let the contradiction or the discrepancy, apparent discrepancy, rock you. They come and two men encounter them and Jesus and his disciples immediately meet them. And notice what it says in verse 29. It says that these demon-possessed men, they cry out to Jesus. They say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now this is not the first time in Jesus' ministry that he and his disciples are encountering the demonic. You recall we learned in our last study that Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, it says that while they were in Capernaum, many that were oppressed by demons were brought to Jesus and he delivered them. Way back when we were studying Matthew chapter 4 in verse 24, just before Jesus went up on the, the mount to give the sermon on the mount, it tells us that all ma- he healed all manner of sickness and disease and those that were oppressed by demons. In the very beginning of Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was driven out into the wilderness, it tells us that the devil himself enticed and tempted Jesus there in the wilderness. So this is not the first encounter with a demonic that these guys are dealing with, but this is the first specific encounter we are given an account of here in this gospel. 
And this is where Jesus and his disciples are encountering these men that are possessed by demons. And I think in the specificity of the account, we learn a lot about the demonic that is taught to us in the scriptures. And so I want to take a little bit of time considering some of these things. Number one is this. Please take notice, according to this account, we know this, that demons do exist. Demons do exist. A demon is a fallen angel. The devil is the head of these fallen angels. Now we know that the devil, or Satan as he's oftentimes referred to, that he himself was an angel of God. And the scripture says as an angel of God, not a fallen angel, but an angel of God, he desired to be lifted up himself as God. Thinking something to the effect of, why does God get all the praise? Why does everybody see his face and know his name and lift up his praise and nobody praises me? And that fall of Satan, it's recorded for us, it's alluded to for us in Ezekiel chapter 28 and in Isaiah chapter uh, 14. That fall was the catalyst that led to the fall of as many as a third of the angels that were ever created. And that is where we get the title, The Fallen Angels. Now, there are some in our day, because we're so educated and so smart, there are some in our day that think the idea of angels and demons are nothing but superstition or primitive or something like that. The reality is the Bible makes clear that they do exist and they are at work even in our present age. Read through the Gospels, and it was clear there was a heightened level of demonic activity at the time of Christ and his ministry. It just is very clear. And perhaps the heightened activity as compared to today in the world that we're living in, or at least in our little world, perhaps there was a realization of the work that Christ had come to do and the desperate attempt of these demons to counteract that work. I don't know their exact motivation. I do know this. The scripture says that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. And so there may not be this uh, clear, present, heightened activity of the demonic in your daily life, But that doesn't mean that the demonic is not involved in our daily lives and in our culture in which we live. The the devil can even masquerade as an angel of light to deceive. I'm sure that he is. This is what we do know, though. I don't know their motivation, but we do know the reality of their existence. Paul said this, Ephesians 6. He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. In the heavenly places. Is that me? Sorry. So the first thing then we learn is this, is the reality of demons. Secondly, we learn from this passage, this truth. Demons have good theology. Demons have good theology. Notice when encountering Jesus, what it says in verse 29, what they call him, they, call, they say to him, O Son of God. Just two verses earlier, The disciples say this about Jesus, what sort of man is this? And yet these demons know exactly what sort of man this is. He is the Son of God. In fact, with the exception of the devil back at the temptation in the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, with the exception of the devil back there, he's the first to have recorded, since you are the Son of God, here you have these, dis- and the dis- our disciples that we know of and we love and they're great, they don't declare that he's the son of God until Matthew chapter 14. So the devil and the demons very early on in Jesus' ministry already know who he is, something the disciples aren't discovering for a little bit down the line. 
They know who he is. They have good theology. Secondly, notice this. They not only know who he is, but what he's going to do. And they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? These demons have a better understanding of the coming judgment than some Christian ministers do in our day. They know that there will be a coming judgment. They believe in the existence and the reality of a loving God casting those that deserve to be judged into hell. They have good theology. Now that leads us, though, to a very important point. They have very good head knowledge, but head knowledge will never save a person. I heard somebody say this. They said, most people miss heaven by as little as 18 inches. That's the distance from our head down to our heart. You see, it's important to have good theology, but good theology in and of itself will never save a person. Often in our day, we will hear people comment and they'll say, well, I believe in God, as if that's some grand acknowledgement. We read this in the book of James, and I, I really like the way the New Living Translation writes it. It says this, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you, James says in the New Living Translation. Apparently, he had a little attitude or whatever. But he says, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Head knowledge. Head knowledge alone will never save a person. Now, continuing on, we discover another thing, a third thing about demons from this passage. So we know that demons exist. Demons have good theology. Now notice this. Demons can take possession of human bodies. Twice in this passage, the men are referred to as being demon-possessed, verse 28 and verse 33. In fact, the Mark passage on this account reveals that these men are not just possessed by one or two demons, but it says there that they are possessed by many demons. Speaking through the man, they say, my name is Legion, for we are many. You catch that? My name is, for we are many. That's bad English if you, you read it there, because you, know, you have to keep your possessive uh, consistent. But the point is there, here's the man who is possessed and controlled by many demons. They refer to themselves, they say, our name is Legion. No doubt referring to the Roman Legion, the only Legion there was, no American Legion then, the only Legion there was at that particular time. And the demons are speaking through the man, say, we are our name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman Legion was made up between 5,000 and 6,000 men. So is it possible that this man is possessed by over 5,000 demons? It's certainly possible. We learn from the pages of Scripture that people can be possessed by demons. Demons can possess people. They can possess other forms of life as well as we're going to see. They go into the pigs. It seems to demons the worst thing that could possibly happen to them besides hell is to be disembodied uh, from something that they're going to live in, like a man or an animal or whatever, indicative of the fact that they, they beg Jesus to be able to go into this herd of swine as we see in verses 30 and 31. People can be possessed by demonic spirits. And by that, what I mean is this, completely under the power and the influence of an evil spirit. A demonic spirit can speak through a person that they possess. We see that here. A demonic spirit can exert supernatural strength and ability through the person they possess. And I base that on in the book of Mark, we learned that these guys here, that they were chained 
to be kept under control and that they would break the chains that would bind them. Supernatural strength. We know that a demonic spirit can ultimately destroy a person they possess. Matthew chapter 17 tells us the story of a boy that was possessed with a demon. And when the demons would do what they were going to do, they would throw the boy down into the fire and ultimately destroy the boy. That was their objective and goal. Now let me add something here, lest you're freaked out right now. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a believer being able to be possessed by a demon. A believer can be oppressed by an evil spirit, but again, nowhere do we see believers being possessed by an evil spirit. Now you say potato, potato. Actually, no, there's a distinct difference between being possessed by a demon and being oppressed or influenced by a demon. Demon possession involves a demon having direct and complete control over the thoughts and their actions of a person. Demon oppression or influence involves a demon or demons attacking a person spiritually and or encouraging him or her into sinful behavior. They can't make you do it, but they can encourage it and, um, and influence you toward it. Now, in all the New Testament passages dealing with spiritual warfare, we have no instructions for, to cast a demon out of a believer. And again, there is a theology running around in our days that essentially the sin that you're wrestling with is demonic, that you have a demon of this and a demon of that and a demon of this. The Bible doesn't teach that. Nowhere uh, is there instructions in Scripture to cast a demon out of a believer. We are told in two instances to resist the devil. It says this in James 4. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It says in 1 Peter 5, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. We're told to resist the devil, but never to cast out the devil. If you name the name of Christ, then you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, What fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The Apostle John, he wrote this in 1 John. He said, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The one that is in you is the Holy Spirit. The one that is in the world is Satan and his demons. And so a believer cannot be possessed by a demon, though you can be influenced by one. Now, so far this is what we've learned about demons. Demons exist. Demons have good theology. Demons can take possession of a human body. And there's one final thing that we note, and it's very important, I think, is this, is that regardless of how powerful and mighty a demon may seem to be or appear. Again, remember, these guys are breaking chains. Can you imagine? They're breaking chains that were meant to bind them. No matter how powerful a demon may appear to be or a person possessed by a demon, demons are ever subservient to Christ. Verse 31, it says this, it says, notice I should say, they resign themselves to the fact that they are powerless to withstand him. It says in 831, the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. They're not saying something like, you know what, I'd like to see you try, or talking tough or something like that. It's clear from the passage that they are keenly aware that whatever it is that Jesus decides to do, that's what Jesus is going to do. They're subservient to him. Notice also in verse 31, they beg Jesus. 
to cast them into the pigs. They don't demand that Jesus do this or do that. They don't make the decision for themselves. We're out of here, and we're going to head off over there on our own. Rather, they beg the all-powerful one to whom they are naturally submitted to. And I want you to notice one more thing in verse 32. Notice Jesus controls them with a word. No one in the entire village could control these guys, not even with chains, and yet Jesus is able to control them with one tiny little word. He says there in verse 32, he just says, go. Again, to quote the the Apostle John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, should you and I respect spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Certainly so. But do we need to cower in fear? Certainly not, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, there are some that ask the question, why Jesus grants these demons permission to inhabit the pigs. Particularly considering we learn in the books of Mark and Luke that as soon as they do inhabit the pigs, the pigs run for their lives, so to speak, and they run right off a cliff and they all end up dying. Luke chapter 8.33 is one of the places it says that. So why would Jesus do that? Doesn't Jesus love animals? I, I remember Linda Simpson told me a story in college when she was there, somebody basically they were bashing Jesus for being anti-animal, for killing all the pigs or whatever. And, and Linda was like, don't you talk about my Jesus. Now she was all mad or whatever or something. Um, I guess she, what's her, uh, Linda likes Jesus more than pigs, right? I, apparently. So she stood up for poor Jesus there. I, I think it's safe to assume this. Jesus would prefer that pigs be inhabited rather than men be inhabited. Or in this case, these men inhabited. It's pretty hard to make an argument against that particular point. But maybe there's other reasons why Jesus cast them off into the pigs. Perhaps he, reve- he wants to reveal the true nature of these demons, that they're really nothing more than destructive beings, and that this is what's ultimately going to happen to this man. And so Jesus casts them off there to kind of show who they really are. Again, Luke 8.33 says the animals rush right off a steep bank and they die. Maybe that was the reason. Maybe there was something else altogether. Perhaps Jesus permits these swine to be inhabited is to reveal to the rest of the people of this town something that's going on inside of each one of them. We read this earlier, but notice again with me, notice the response of the townspeople to the encounter. It starts off in verses 33 and 34. It says, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Isn't that shocking? They begged Jesus to leave their region. Now, you have to ask yourself why, and we don't really know the answer, but you have to ask why. Luke 8.37 tells us at least part of the reason was is because they were seized with great fear, as they should be. This man, Jesus, with a word, was able to do what they as an entire city could not collectively do. Now, their plan for this guy was to bind him and cast him off, or them, and cast them off among the dead. But Jesus' plan was to heal this man and to restore him to his right mind. Do you see the big difference? How man deals with sinners how man deals with hopeless situations and how Jesus deals with sinners and Jesus deals with the hopeless situation. You know, but I don't think it's that different today because I think even in our own lives, we can be tempted 
to write someone off as too far gone for the love and the mercy of God. We can say to ourselves, you know what, they'll never come to the Lord. So why even bother? I remember reading an article one time about a guy that was a part of Saddam Hussein's uh, inner guard. I think they were called the Republican Guard or, or something like that. And he was basically one of the, the secret service men for Saddam Hussein, right there with Saddam Hussein. And the guy had gotten saved. And you can really tell a lot of people or whatever it may be. And somebody, the, the article that I was reading essentially said, wouldn't it be something if he shared the gospel with Saddam Hussein and he got saved? And my original thought was, well, it's never going to happen. Saddam Hussein's a lunatic. How's he going to get saved? Whatever. You, you see, do you think that way or is it just me? <laughs> yeah, sometimes I look at certain people, I'm like, oh my gosh, that guy. Don't even bother. You know, fi- go find somebody else that's a more likely candidate to get saved or whatever here. So I'm just like the people of that particular town. Maybe you are as well. But sometimes we say to ourselves, that person will never come to the Lord, so why bother? Maybe the most practical takeaway that we can take from this account this morning is this, that no one is outside of the reach of God's mercy and grace. Do you know someone you think could never get saved? Do you know someone you think could never get past that sin that so easily besets them. Maybe you're that someone. And maybe this morning, you can take hope in the truth that while the circumstances may seem hopeless, and while everyone else may have given up on you, Jesus hasn't given up on you. And that's really good news to take with us. Now additionally, I can't help but wonder if the reason they're so upset with Jesus is because he just destroyed their lucrative means of income. This herd of swine, it tells us in the book of Mark there, that as many as 2,000 pigs run off of that cliff and die. This herd of swine re- reflect a great deal of profit when they are eventually sold at market or wh- however they're going to be sold. So there's two problems that we see here. One, if these indeed are Jewish people that Jesus is dealing with, and you remember we're in a Gentile region but there were quite a few Jews that lived in that particular region. You you remember also this, Jesus primarily, when he dealt with groups of people, he primarily dealt with Jewish people. It was his disciples that would bring the message to Gentiles and so on. So if it turns out that this group of people that are coming out and dealing with him are indeed Jewish people, then I ask the question, what are they doing with a herd of swine? And what are they doing marketing that swine? According to the Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 14, swine were unclean to the Jews and not an animal that they were to be dealing with. And so why are these Jews dealing with swine? Well, maybe they're not Jews. Maybe they're Gentiles there. Whether they're Jews or Gentiles, either way, they are still guilty of the same thing, that they are more concerned about their money and their profit than a man's soul. And by their actions, by coming to Jesus, being upset with Jesus because he just destroyed all of their profit, at least in their thinking, they are saying this essentially. We would rather that this men or these men, we would rather that these men still be possessed by their demons and destined for physical and eternal destruction than for us to have lost our pigs and the income that they would have brought us. How sad. How sad that their love of money could lead them to the place that they would exchange another man's soul to attain that money. But it really shouldn't be that surprising to us. Jesus said this in Mark 8.37. He said, what does it profit a man? It's not Mark 8.37. It's somewhere. 
Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? And we've probably all seen it. Maybe we've wrestled with it ourselves. Excuse me. The exchanging of our soul for the chance to earn a buck or two. Sacrificing our integrity to make a sale. Skimming a little here and there so that we can put a little extra in our pockets. If people are willing to sell their own soul to make a buck, should it really surprise us that these folks would be willing to trade another man's soul to make a buck? I wonder, as I said when I began, how much is someone's soul worth to you? How much is someone's soul worth to me? What would you give in exchange for another man's soul? If you knew, without a doubt, without any, well, it may be, I hope so, but you knew for certain that your contribution, contribution to the mission fund or the outreach fund would directly lead to additional souls in heaven, would that affect your giving? It probably would. If you knew that your hour or two of volunteering each week would be the impetus that led a little life to Jesus, would you sign up to help out with Sunday school? I'm sure you would. If you knew that the meal or the cup of cold water that you shared with the homeless guy or gal would be the hands and feet of Jesus that would ultimately convince that person that God did indeed care for them, would you go out and meet the physical needs of folks in our community? Or is your time too precious to sacrifice on behalf of other people? Now, I know some of you are thinking, you're a jerk or whatever. Look at you. I'm, tell I'm preaching the same sermon to myself. I did this all week. You get an hour. You can handle it or whatever. All week I had to deal with these questions. Is your time too precious to sacrifice on behalf of others? Is your expendable income too important to let go of? Again, I ask the question, how much is a soul worth to you. Now let me make one final point this morning because I believe it's a point which demonstrates to each of us just how important a soul is worth to Jesus. Look at verse 1 of the next chapter. It says this, now getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over and he came to his own city. So put all this together. A few hours earlier, Jesus and his disciples are in the city of Capernaum. People are being healed. Those that are oppressed by demons are being delivered. Those that were bound were being set free. Large crowds are gathering to see him. Again, in one of the other accounts, it says the whole city came out to see him. Then they get in a boat, and they begin to cross over the Sea of Galilee, only to get caught up in a tempest which threatens to kill them, leading to experienced fishermen crying out in fear, grown men desperate of life itself, accusing Jesus of not caring about them. But through it all, they make it to the other side of the sea where they are encountered by a, a couple of crazed, demon-possessed men who had apparently recently broken off the chains that the townspeople had put on them to bind them. And once again, Jesus does the miraculous, and he delivers these men of that which oppressed them. And then they get back in the boat, and they go back to the other side of the river. Do you see that? The disciples went through all of this for two men. Hours of back-breaking rowing in near-death circumstances, all to cross over and reach a couple of men. Really? All that trouble for just two people? All of that trouble for two men? Surely, 
there must be a more significant reason to go through all of that trouble than just a couple of guys. And the answer is this, and this tells us a lot about our Savior and his love for us. There is no other reason but to go over and reach these two guys. Again, how much is a soul worth? Jesus would say, it's worth my entire life. Jesus would say, I'll leave my place in heaven to become one of my created beings, be rejected by my created beings, beaten and crucified, also that I might save some. And I'll do that at no benefit to myself, but because of my belief in the value of a man's soul. Now, if Jesus is willing to do that, then surely sailing through a little storm, quote unquote, we weren't there, but sailing through a little storm pales in comparison. How much is a soul worth to you? And again, how much is it worth to you? How much is it worth to us as a church? What percentage of our community around us does not know Christ and the power of his death and resurrection? What percentage of our extended families, our coworkers, our neighbors, are not going to experience eternal life with Christ when they die and are perpetually at risk of losing their soul because of that reality. How much is a soul worth? Is it worth attending a prayer meeting to intercede on their behalf? Is it worth sacrificial giving of your time, your money, and your efforts? Here's a big one for a lot of us. Is it worth the rejection? When you go to them and say, can I share something with you that I think is the most important thing I could ever share with you? And they reject you. Is it worth that? Maybe as a church, certainly I do, I know I do. Maybe we need to allow the Lord to search out our hearts. Expose some errors in our thinking and our practice. Maybe we need to allow him to speak to our hearts, to burden our hearts for the lost. Maybe we need to have him convince us of the value of a man's soul that brings us to the place where we are convinced that a soul is worth the trouble, any amount of trouble, just so that we might see others be saved. Heavy words, aren't they? You know, sometimes we need to hear heavy words. And so I encourage you, let the Lord speak to you on that matter. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. And Father, even when we... uh, we kind of feel like you're right in our face speaking truth to us. And it it makes us a little uncomfortable. It kind of causes us to pull back a little bit. Lord, we know that uh, your love is right there in the midst of it as well. Lord, you love us, you love others. And your great desire is to see, Lord, as many come to know you before that day. And Lord, it's so easy for us here in America to be lulled to sleep. Just to get comfortable. To be able to put out of our minds the reality of eternity. Either in or out of your presence. Maybe even, Lord, to deceive ourselves into thinking, you know what? God's going to do what God's going to do anyway. But Lord, you command us to go into all the world and make disciples. And so my prayer for us, Lord, as a church, Lord, really my prayer for myself, first and foremost, 
is that you would so burden my heart for the lost, our heart for the lost. Lord, that we would be, a, we would be willing to do whatever was necessary that that person Lord, uh, was without excuse. They've heard and they saw the clear presentation of the gospel. Lord, as uh, we, we see the example in the Old Testament that uh, of the prophets, that they, their hands were free of the blood of others, Lord. They were the faithful watchmen. Lord, we want to be the faithful watchmen on the wall that declared the warning and then let people do what they're going to do with that themselves. What would happen, Lord, if a couple of hundred of us caught that vision? Or developed that burden? Do that, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Street, so don't come here. Uh, we'll be across the street at the office, and if you don't know where that is, uh, they can direct you at the information table. Well, I, I was with some friends yesterday morning, early in the morning, and a, uh, the BBC report came that uh, Saeed had been released, and uh, I didn't believe it. I, 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 be, I mean, I, I want to believe it, but I, it was one of those, a, those stories in Acts where they're praying for Peter to be released, and then Peter comes to the door, and they knock on the door, and they're praying that moment for him to be released. And the, the girl goes back to the crowd and said, Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, Peter's not at the door. Peter's in prison. We're praying he'll be released. And he was. And, and I said to myself, Saeed can't be released. We're praying for him to be released. Um, so the Lord is just pretty cool. Uh, as Will said, this is important, I think. Uh, you know, he's not going to jump back in and start coaching Little League uh, tomorrow afternoon. Uh, there's, a, there's a great deal of recovery that's going to need to go on with him and with the whole family. So uh, please continue to keep him in your prayers. If, if you were regularly praying for Saeed, keep praying for him and his family. Um, amen. But hey, our, our brother was faithful. They offered many times that he could go anytime he wanted if he just denied the Lord. And he was faithful. Uh, and that is a great testimony. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our brother. For his wife, Lord, his children, Lord, the whole extended family. And Lord, we do want to lift them up to you. Lord, we can only imagine, Lord, uh, the great joy, Lord, that uh, is in their hearts. But, but Lord, also uh, all that's ahead of them. So we pray for them, Lord, that you would strengthen them daily. Lord, that um, in a miraculous way, you would do, Lord, just a, a daily healing work within them, each of them. Father, we continue to pray for his captors, that they would be saved and come to know you. We continue to pray for fellow prisoners there, Lord, in, uh, in the prison in Iran, Lord, that they might um, take the words that Saeed had shared with them, Lord, the testimony that he lived out before them, and, Father, that you would bring them to the point of conversion as well. Lord, we pray that his testimony and um, the testimony of so many others in the world today that are uh, suffering, Lord, active examples of persecution for the faith, Lord, that there would be an encouragement to others as well. Lord, I'm reminded of Hebrews 11 and all of those things that all of those guys and gals had gone through. And Lord, how it's a testimony to each of us that it can be done. We can walk this walk of faith and live a life of faithfulness to you here on the earth. And so, Father, encourage who needs to be encouraged through that testimony. And Lord, we do rejoice. 
Lord, that uh, Saeed is, uh, has made it out of Iran and is safe right now in Switzerland and on his way here to the United States soon. Lord, bless our time together. We ask for you to come speak, Lord, to us. Well, I don't think there's anything more on the earth that I believe to be true than that the word of God has the power to change our lives. And Lord, as your spirit ministers the truth of the word of God, you bring us, Lord, right into your presence. You, you sit us down right there at your feet and you begin to minister to us the same way you ministered thousands of years ago in the flesh. And so, Lord, we're praying this morning, Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive, that you'd bless the word as it goes forth, Lord, that much fruit would be born as a result of this specific time together gathering to listen. Lord, we pray that eternity, in one way or another, would be affected by this time together looking into your word. So, Holy Spirit, come and minister to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.